Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. This is going to be a little bit more depressing, today's edition of Rico Bronia. A while back, we did a podcast going through some of the great free agent signings in the history of the New York Mets. It was a happy occasion. It was a smiling occasion. Thought back to good moments, to good players. Everybody was smiling, but you knew what was inevitable, and that was to come back and do the complete opposite. And what's really, really sad about worst free agent signings in Met history is there are many, many choices. I mean, it is a laundry list of bad signings throughout history. Um, It's funny, when we did best free agent signings in Met history, I did get a couple of emails and a couple of tweets almost ripping Pete and I for not including one particular signing. And what I would write back to those guys is I said, just wait for the worst signing. Because even though you think this guy should be in the best signing, in my mind, he's in the worst signing. So we'll get to that. And trust me, when we get to that player, I will remind you that there were many people that wanted him in the best signing category. Now, two things. There are two kinds of free agents, and we should clarify, and it's kind of similar to what we talked about when we did the best free agent signings. And I do recommend you listening to that podcast. If you haven't listened, go back into the archives of Rico Bronia. It's there. But we differentiated between signing a guy after you've acquired them. Because uh, look, look at Mike Piazza. He's a great example. The Mets traded for Mike Piazza. None of us would ever consider him to be a free agent signing. But then the Mets went out and signed him. It's sort of different with this because there are five particular guys who I think live on the Mount Rushmore, if you will, of horrible Mets signings, except they were acquired via trade and then it got bad once they were given a new contract. So I want to start with those guys. I think it's a completely separate category because they weren't acquired as free agents. But as we go through these names and you think back to their tenure with the Mets, trust me, It'll ring a bell that they were acquired and then they were given a contract. And those contracts are what really we remember as the bad of the bad. There are five particular guys, one of which is before my time. So I want to get that out of the way early because this is something that I think it's important to mention, but I don't remember the guy as a player. Uh, can I bust your chops real quick there, Evan? Just, just because we... I thought we established if they were on the team already, you really can't put them in the, on the, like that free agent category. 
I agree. I think it's different, though, in this case. And you're going to hear why right now. Because some of the guys I'm about to mention were so effing bad off (laughs) that they actually need to be mentioned. So we're going to separate them. I think we're going to do two categories. The ones I'm about to get to right now, guys that were acquired and given new contracts, because they're almost different tenures in a weird way. And then the guys that they just flat out added in free agency. You'll see. It's really, really different. Really different. Let me start with George Foster. Because George Foster is a guy that I don't think Hoff remembers as old as he is. I don't remember him as a player. And I didn't even realize, I, I had always assumed that the Mets just signed George Foster as a free agent. But when you look back, the Mets traded for him. They actually made a trade with Cincinnati. The Reds were trying to give him an extension. The Mets ended up giving him an extension as soon as they traded for him. So I, you want to count that as a free agent. Count it however the hell you want. Here's the bottom line. George Foster was an MVP with the Cincinnati Reds. George Foster hit 52 home runs with the Cincinnati Reds. George Foster was a big part of the big red machine. He comes to the Mets at age 33, and he flat out sucks. That's that's just the bottom line. He was not very good. His first year with the Mets hit 13 home runs and 70 RBIs with a 676 OPS. His second year was better. He had 28 home runs, drove in 90, but his OPS was still crappy at 708. Plus, everybody hated him. That was the other thing I heard. Nobody liked him in the Met locker room. So as the Mets were starting to emerge as this good young team, specifically in 84 and then 85, nobody in the locker room liked him to the point where in 1986, they finally mercifully caught him. But he was actually a part of the team that was turning the franchise around. But for many older Met fans, they look at George Foster as the first significant addition Technically not a free agent, but sort of free agency because of the extension. And they look at him as just one of the biggest failures. At the time, his contract made him the second highest paid player in baseball behind Yankee Dave Winfield. He got a five-year, $10 million contract. Doesn't sound like a lot now, but back then, it was a crap load of money. So out of respect for the past, I want to mention George Foster. Now, let's get to our era, Hoff, and you'll see... Why these guys have to be mentioned. Let's start with Oliver Perez. All right. (laughs) Because when the Mets traded for Oliver Perez right before the trade deadline in 2006, he was sort of the throw in. He was having a terrible, terrible season. And the Mets really needed bullpen help because Duaner Sanchez got in that car accident. So they traded Xavier Nady. They got back Roberto Hernandez and they got back Oliver Perez. And let's be honest. Oliver Perez, at the beginning of his Met tenure, and this is prior to signing any kind of contract, was not a bad Met. He pitched rather well in Game 7 of that NLCS, got bailed out by that amazing catch by Andy Chavez, but overall pitched pretty well in that game, and then came back in the 2007 season and was really good. That's the crazy thing about it. He comes back in 2007, has a a 3.5-yard ray, wins 15 games, gives him 177 innings, and always seemed to pitch well in the big spot. Like, Mets play the Philadelphia Phillies, Oliver Perez pitched well. Mets play the New York Yankees, Oliver Perez pitched well. Comes back in 2008, not quite as good of a season, but a pretty good season. Goes out and makes 34 starts, those 194 innings, has a low 4 ERA, and was at least a consistent contributor in the middle of that Met rotation. Then he hit free agency. Now, Hoff, 
Do you remember the other big free agents that were available during that time period? The other free agents in this is 2005 or 2006? No, no, this is 2009 now because 2009. remember they, they got him in 06. He pitches fine right. in 2007, pitches fine in 2008, now gets to free agency. And Oliver Perez is out there. You know, he's just he's a free agent sitting out there. And it took a while before the Mets signed him. That's why I you sort of have to include him in this because he was gone in a way. The Mets had a chance to replace him. And then the Mets had decided just to bring him back. I'm and, I'm blanking who the who the who the stud because it must have been a pitcher that we're trying to go for if we had to go and bring back Oliver Perez, correct? There was another pitcher available during that offseason. Um you may have heard of him. You may have remembered him. His name was C.C. Sabathia. Mm. Oh, duh. <laughs> no, but it's not a no-duh because we were so trained by the Wilpons to know the Mets were never going <laughs> after C.C. Sabathia. They were never going after A.J. Burnett, who was a free agent at the time. Um, Derek Lowe was a free agent, too, and I, I remember him being one of the guys I looked at saying, hey, he wouldn't be bad. He wouldn't be a terrible addition. But they obviously decided to re-sign Oliver Perez. He was only 27 years old. They gave him a three-year, $36 million deal. And, bro, we got to own it. I have to own it. I was not against this. This is the one thing Salicata and I always bust each other's balls about. I was always a pro-Oliver Perez guy. And, by the way, why not? He was 26 years old. He was coming off a solid season in 2008. was coming off a really good season in 2007 was still incredibly young, and they got him back on a three-year contract. And you looked at the other starting pitchers that were out there, and really Derek Lowe was the competition. Because, like I said, Hoff, they were never in on CC Sabathia. It was never, ever going to happen. So at the time, I was good with re-signing him. And what ended up happening after that was, I, I got to tell you, bro, pound for pound, the worst signing in the history of the franchise. And the reason I say that is, is Oliver Perez, after signing a contract for three years, made 21 starts in three years, okay? His ERA was 6.81. Not 4.81, not 5.81, 6.81. He was as effing bad as anybody you could imagine after he got that contract. So... I know it's not a free agent edition, but do you see my point why this is not a real podcast if we don't give five minutes to ripping Oliver Perez a new ass? I, I, ag I agree, and I was so anti-re-signing him for many different reasons. Um, but I, I it's funny because when you actually talk about him being a Met and traded to the team, like that was actually a positive trait. Yes, yes. So, 100%. So I, it, it, but you're right. As soon as, we, and the worst part about the Oliver Perez uh, free agency was that he sucked for us, but he's still pitching now or what? Just, just retired or whatever it is. Like, <laughs> he was so bad. And we had to deal with that crap. And then we see him with go to the playoffs. We see him become a stud relief pitcher. I mean, that, that did suck. And I always remember because his contract was something that used to bother me when the Mets let go Daniel Murphy and he signed a 3-for-36 year contract, I believe it was. Yep. Wasn't that what Ali, Ali Perez signed? Three he for did. 36? He signed a 3-year 36 million. That's now. always in the back of my freaking head. I'm like, if you spent money on Ali Perez, uh, how many years ago on that crap you couldn't sign Daniel Murphy for 3-for-36? 
So, so you mentioned what he became out of the bullpen, and I give him a lot of credit. You know, I could take my hatred aside for him and say, hey, the guy reinvented himself, and the guy put together a really good career. And I remember when it felt like Ali was a sink cost, where a sunk cost, I should say, and we couldn't start him every five days anymore. I remember thinking, boy, they should just try to reinvent him. They should try to make him a left-handed reliever. And I think at the time, Perez didn't want to do it. Oliver Perez didn't want to go back to the minor leagues, didn't want to become this left-handed specialist, and it wasn't until the Mets caught him, and he really had no choice. At that point, Oliver Perez could have left Major League Baseball. He had certainly made enough money, or he had the opportunity to reinvent himself. The Mets were never given the chance to do that, if memory serves correct, that he was not going to humble himself in the midst of that contract to becoming a left-handed reliever. And by the way, let's say he did. Let's say he said, you know what? This isn't working. I'm going to become a lefty reliever. We would never have accepted him because he had become public enemy number one. He was getting booed. His name became a joke. I don't know if we would have even given him an opportunity to then come back as this left-handed specialist, which he did, and he deserves a lot of credit for. So you're right. And and by the way, you're going to hear a lot of this. There's a lot of similarities to this and a few other moves we'll get to where the trade itself initially was good and the guy performed, and then it was the extension in which it became a disaster. I got to be Perez is a great example. I got to be honest. This has been going on for, what, 10 minutes? I'm going to hate this podcast already. (laughs) It's depressing. It's awful. That's why I made sure a while back to do the pro-free agent signing because we needed to feel good about ourselves before we got depressed. Here's the one that when I say his name, you'll say, what are you talking about? This guy was a great Met. Well, you know, what the hell do you mean by that? Uh, But it fits the exact same bill as Oliver Perez. And that, of course, is Yoenis Cespedes. Uh, obviously the Mets traded for him in one of the great trade deadline deals in the history of the franchise. Um, You could argue it's the best one. I know there are some others you can look back on. You could look back at Don Clendenin in 1969. You could look back at Keith Hernandez in 1983. I understand that. I totally get it. Those led to championships. This didn't lead to a title. But in terms of the impact he made, And the difference in what the Mets would have been if they didn't make that trade to when they did make the trade, it was pound for pound one of the great trade deadline deals of all time. And when they made the deal, I said this on the air to Joe. I said, just remember, we're effing around. We're not marrying her. We're going to have a real good night with her, but we're not marrying her. And that's the way I looked at Yoenis, except I was wrong. Because at the end of the season, after many Met fans, myself included, were screaming and yelling, you've got to keep Yoenis, you have to keep Yoenis, they did on a very, very creative three-year, but he can opt out after one contract. And it was great. It worked out beautifully. Yoenis had a good season in 2016. He opted out. And then we were in the same boat. Yoenis Cespedes is a free agent. What the hell should the Mets do? And the Mets ultimately did what... Well, we wanted them to do. And that was they handed Cespedes a four-year, $110 million contract. And that's where the discussion on Yoenis sucking and not being a good Met, that's where it kicks in. Because in 2015, he was great. In 2016, he was great. And then the rest of his Met career 
for a myriad of reasons, which we're about to get to, became a disaster. Before we get into it, I wanted Cespedes back. I'm pretty sure every Met fan wanted Cespedes back. You were in that group, right, Hoff? You were applauding the Wilpons and Sandy Alderson for giving Yoannis the four years 110, correct? So I'm going to rewind it just a little bit. To me, he was a key to the playoff run in in 2015. It was a no-brainer. Sign him. I didn't really like the creativity behind the deal, but I said, you got to do it. It's fine. The problem was that that was their key offseason move. And to me, we this is why this is such a weird uh you know, free agent topic because it was already our possession. You need to add to it. So that's why the Wilpon screwed the pooch on that. But after that first year, after that first free agent's year that we signed and he opted out, I kind of was, are we really going to go through this again? So I, I wasn't 100% sold, but I'm not going to say I wasn't sold. Yeah, I, I think when they made that announcement, I remember when they made the deal to sign him on the four-year deal, my wife woke me up to tell me. That's how I found <laughs> oh, out. I'm sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, she got the update on her phone and knew I was you know, <laughs> nervous about it. So she said, honey, you're not going to believe it. Yoannis is back. It's one of those contracts where I think you know in the moment it's probably not going to work. It's probably not the greatest contract in the world, but you have to do it. And, and that's the way I viewed it. I didn't think... It would work out as badly as it did. What's funny is in his first year of the new contract, 2017, he was an incredibly productive player. He just didn't play. That was the problem. He missed half the season and only played 81 games, and obviously the season spiraled out of control, and the Mets had an awful, awful season. It turned out to be Terry Collins' last year with the team. Then you got 2018, where, again, barely plays. Sort of productive when he plays, but he plays 38 games in 2018. And then you got the uh, the bull moose situation or the horse situation. What was the animal? that The ox? It was a wild cow? boar. The boar. He had the boar issues. <laughs> he had the boar. We actually had someone on air to call into Steve Summers to explain to him about the boars because they would go boar hunting. Like This guy was a guy who actually went boar hunting with a lot of <laughs> Cespedes' teammates but didn't want to route him out. He's like, yeah, this happens all the time. There's a lot of traps, blah, 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 blah. So this was a, clearly a big issue in, in, in Florida. Yes, yes. The boars are a major problem in Florida. And that was basically the rest of his career. He didn't play at all in 2019, a year in which the Mets were actually decent and somewhat independent race. And then he comes back in the pandemic year. And it was, so, this is the most bizarre five minutes we ever got with Yoannis Cespedes. He comes back as the designated hitter in the pandemic season. We all sort of figure he's coming back because he just wants to, to make some money. I think they restructured his deal. They did. Where it was all incentive-based. And then there was only a 60-game season, so there was controversy around how much could he actually make off the 60 games. He comes back. He has a dramatic home run on opening day in front of nobody because there were no fans there at the time. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Maybe they're going to get something out of this guy. And then after eight games in which he hit 161, just leaves. Just just walks out, just says, I'm done. I think he cited COVID. Like, ah, I don't want to play during this COVID season, which, look, there were a lot of guys that opted out. I understand it. It didn't feel like that was the reason. It felt like Yohannes Cespedes was just done playing baseball. So his Met career ended in the most obscure, 
bizarre way. But when you look at the four-year contract for $110 million, here are the facts. In the four years, he had 28 home runs. In the four years, he played about 120 games. In four years! So, Cespedes fits kind of the Oliver Perez thing. Obviously, a lot more extreme in that he was a good Met until he signed the contract as a free agent. And he got to free agency. There were rumors he was going to go to the Washington Nationals. Like, he could have left. He could have been a New York Yankee. I think there were rumors about the Yankees. And then ultimately, he resigns, and it turns into pound for pound one of the worst contracts in the history of the franchise. Uh, I, I I think that they also sued to get the money back from him, if I'm correct, yes. right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Did the Mets win? Did the Wilpons win? Did they get, they get, get, the, get the payday? <laughs> Nobody gives a rat's ass. We know that. I Two more that fit this bill. Uh, Luis Castillo, I don't want to spend that much time on him. The Mets traded for him. Omar Minaya did. At that point in his career, he wasn't the same guy. They end up resigning him to a four-year, $25 million deal. He was vastly overpaid. He just, he wasn't good. As simple as that. So it was different than Perez and Cespedes and that Castillo was never good for the Mets. And the Mets made a huge mistake in re-signing him after they had traded for him. The other guy, and it was a long time ago. Oh, and also, by the way, he also hindered uh, the, the from the Mets getting other people at that spot because they paid him for they, the overcommitment to him as well was really yeah, bothersome. They, they blocked second base and they were paying him a lot of money. That's that's always the negative about a bad free agent. Uh, before Steve Cohen bought the team with the Wilpons, it was uh oh, bad free agent. Now this amount of money will not be respent. This position is now filled. We just have to play this guy every day. So the bad free agent almost kind of became worse than the player not being good because of the impact it would have in other areas. Another guy who fits the bill of he was really good for one year is Bernard Gilkey. The Mets traded for Bernard Gilkey right before the 1996 season. They traded like Eric Ludwig and two other minor leaguers, non-existent guys. And Gilkey put together, honestly, one of the great seasons that you'll ever see. He comes to the Mets. He hits 317. He ties the RBI record. The Mets single season RBI record at the time was a buck 17. He tied it. He had 30 home runs. He had 44 doubles. He was unbelievable. And he really was. He was a tremendous Met in 1996. It was that odd year where the team was terrible, but they had three great years from position players. Todd Hundley, Lance Johnson, and Bernard Gilkey. So Gilkey has this great year. And then when the season's over, the Mets have to keep him. How can you not? He's coming off this amazing year. And they gave him a four-year, $20 million contract. And oh my God, it's like Bernard Gilkey said, great, you paid me, I'm done. Because he sucked in 1997. He was even worse in 1998. They finally traded him at the deadline. And my memory of Bernard Gilkey is Bob Murphy, the great Bob Murphy, would say over and over again about Gilkey, you know, we all know what Bernard Gilkey is. He'll be just fine. And I, by August of 98, I'm like, Murph, is he going to be just fine? <laughs> you know, at what point do you say he's not going to be just fine? He just sucks. So one great year, give him a new contract. It becomes a disaster. Those are your five guys that kind of fit the bill of they weren't technically free agents added. They were just free agents that the Mets decided to keep. Of those five guys, 
in your opinion, Hoff, which one was the worst? Oh, I mean, there's I, the hate for most of those guys is, is immense, but I, I think the Cespedes was just a debacle. And I there were so many ways they could have gotten out of it, but they doubled down that second year with the free agent signing again. I'm like, ah. So I think that that hurts the most. Yeah, I, I'll leave George Foster out only because we didn't experience it. Uh, I can imagine that any Met fan over the age of 50 is probably screaming, it's George Foster, it's George Foster. I, I totally get that. I'm actually going to give the edge to Ali Perez because <laughs> to be that bad, I mean, he had a six eight ERA. And he was 27. Like, there was no reason for Oliver Perez to just completely collapse the way he did. But he did. So, there you go. Now let's get to the free agents that the Mets added. The traditional free agent list. And I I guess I'll go in order. You know what? I'm not going to go in any order. I'm just going to pick out where I want to pick. So, I'll start with the guy that it's a little controversial because... I did receive a few emails and tweets, and of course, you could always email the show at thericob at gmail.com. Thoughts, comments, you want to yell at us, completely fine. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a lot of feedback that Pedro Martinez needed to be on the list of great Met free agent signings. And while I don't think Pedro Martinez is the worst of the worst, I would put him more in the category of worst than I would best. Because one thing I always heard about it, which I don't buy, <coughs> excuse me, is this idea that they needed to sign him because that convinced Carlos Beltran to come here. That that's what really changed the New York Mets in the offseason of 04 and 05. It kind of dawned in the new era of Met baseball. And while I do think that Pedro Martinez signing here changed the perception of the team, Carlos Beltran signed here because the Mets offered him the most money. I mean, let's just be blunt about it. They, it's not like Carlos Beltran took less money to come here because, oh my God, I need to be teammates with Pedro Martinez. So I do think the whole idea that Pedro was the guy that brought other guys here is completely overblown. The Mets at that point in their history had decided, hey, we're going to spend a little bit of money. And I do give the Wilpons and Omar Minaya credit for that. They spent money. They signed Carlos Beltran. They tried to sign Carlos Delgado. They eventually got him a year later. They signed Pedro Martinez. They were really changing the face of this franchise. And obviously it worked to a certain degree. But when they signed Pedro to a four-year, $54 million contract, and he was great his first year, by the way. He was absolutely fantastic. He went 15-8. and eight. He had a 2-8-2 ERA. Um, went out and made basically every start through 217 innings. It was a real bounce-back year for him because a year earlier with the Red Sox, when they broke the curse, he had his worst year in a long time out of 3-9 ERA, though he did pitch well in the World Series. So Pedro was great in year one. The Mets were better, but they weren't that good. They were sort of in a pennant race, but not really. Sort of fell out of it in early September. And then the rest of his Met career sucked. I'm sorry, the rest of his Met career was filled with injuries, was filled with him not pitching when they needed him the most, and was filled with, eh, he's not that good. So I wouldn't even think about putting him on the list of greatest free agent signings. I'd put him on the list of worst free agent signings. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. Unfortunately, I just he wasn't in his prime, and that that's what sucks about a lot of what the Mets have done, and I'm sure that some of these guys are going to are prototypical to Pedro Martinez. What he did, he did more 
for what the future of the team was than what he did when he actually played. And that and that's a sucky thing. His name was powerful, but his performances weren't. Yeah, and look, 2006, the Mets had the best team in the National League. The one deficiency they had going into the postseason was their starting pitching. And that's because Pedro Martinez wasn't pitching. Pedro Martinez was hurt, and Pedro had a, a kind of a weirdo six because he was really good in the first half of the year. So it looked like Pedro was having another good season. He was a part of what was the best team in the National League. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, postseason time. Here's Pedro pitching game one of the divisional series. Here's Pedro pitching game seven of a league championship series, or dare I say pitching a World Series. And he got hurt, missed a lot of time. And then when he came back, he was terrible. That's why his his final numbers weren't very good. He actually finished with a 4-4-80 ERA. But I'd argue he was a lot better than that. He pitched a lot better than that, but then got hurt. Couldn't stay healthy, and when they needed him the most in October, he wasn't there. El Duque wasn't there. It was Tom Glavin, it was John Main, it was Steve Traxel, and it was eventually Oliver Perez. And that was the thing the Mets, and that wasn't their strength. They had a really good bullpen, they had a dynamic offense, and they didn't have pitching. In 2007, he missed a big part of the season, came back late, and to his credit, pitched well down the stretch. Like, he actually had some pretty good performances in the limited time he pitched in 2007, but maybe not his fault. He didn't get a chance to pitch in the postseason because the Mets choked it away. And then 2008, he was terrible. Like he just, he was done. And he was done. And look, I don't care what he did with the Phillies in 2009. He spent five minutes there. I guess he was okay. It meant nothing to me. What mattered to me is that when they needed him in 2007, when they needed him in 2006, when they even needed him in 2008, 2008, the Mets were in a pennant race. Johan Santana was the new ace of the team. Pedro came up small. So when I look back at that four-year, $54 million deal, again, I'm not saying that he's on the Mount Rushmore of bad free agent contracts, but he's more in this category than he is the category of being one of the best free agent signings. The problem is, too, though, is that you, you gotta blame Will Pons for a lot of stuff, and a lot of... If, I forgot whose book it was about uh, Pedro being hurt and still being forced to pitch, and, and that kind of put a damper on the rest of his career. Well, you know what, though? Here's the way I look at that. It doesn't matter, looking back at it all these years later, because what we needed was someone to pitch well for us. If he's not pitching, that sucked. And if he's pitching and pitching bad, that sucks. Like, there's no... Both scenarios are bad. Both <laughs> scenarios make it a bad free agent signing. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you're not, not pitching, <laughs> or you're pitching and you suck. Like, okay, what would I rather have? Look, obviously, I'd rather, you ha rather have you not pitch so maybe someone else pitches and pitches better. But when you sign Pedro Martinez to a four-year, $54 million deal, both outcomes are bad. So it, does, it doesn't make me feel better. Um, this one is, is a lesson. All right, let this be a lesson. Roger Cedeno signed back with the New York Mets before the 2002 season on a four-year, $18 million contract. We've all had girlfriends in the past. And maybe once in a while, a long time ago, because I'm married now, Hoff is married now, but maybe once in a while after you broke up with your girlfriend or she broke up with you, you thought about getting back together. It crossed your mind. You said, ah, the sex was great. I got to get back together with her. And then you do or you come close to it 
and you realize why you broke up in the first place. And it turns out to be a disaster. How many times? And there's nobody listening who got back together with their girlfriend or boyfriend and everything worked out great. It never, ever, ever, ever happens. And so if you look through Met history, when they bring someone back, whether it's Kevin McReynolds, <laughs> I don't know why I'm using him as an example, whether it's Jeremy Burnitz, whether it's you name the guy, it never, ever worked. David Cohn. They brought David Cohn back when he was a corpse. Yeah, that worked out great. So when the Mets decided to sign Roger Cedeno as their big free agent signee after the 2001 season, even though he was only 27 years old, even though he was coming off, you know, halfway productive seasons with the Detroit Tigers and the Houston Astros, we all remembered what he did with the Mets in 1999. Roger Cedeno had one of the great seasons. He hit over 300. He stole what was a team record, 66 bases. He was amazing. We all loved Roger Cedeno. None of us wanted to lose him when they traded him in the deal for Mike Hampton. We knew it had to happen, but none of us wanted to lose him. They bring him back in 2002, and I'm telling you, it took about a week before Met fans turned on him. It took about a week before he was public enemy number one on a baseball team that, let's face it, had a lot of public enemies. The 2002 Mets also brought in this former All-Star and future Hall of Famer, you may have remembered him, Roberto Alomar. Roberto Alomar sucked, he did. But guess who sucked more? Roger Cedeno. They brought back Jeremy Burnitz. I just used him as an example. He sucked, but not as bad as Roger Cedeno. They acquired Mo Vaughn. Mo Vaughn actually wasn't bad his first year with the Mets. So I'm not going to make any comments about him sucking, but I'll say this, Roger Cedeno was worse. Roger Cedeno was worse than every last player on this team. And I don't know why. He was 27 years old. He was still the prime of his career, but there was something about him that was different. Oh yeah, I know why. Because he became a fat ass. Because Roger Cedeno all of a sudden didn't look as limber as he did in 1999. Roger Cedeno became so hated by Met fans that after the 2003 season, they had to give his ass away. He signed a four-year contract. As he was beginning year three, the Mets handed him to the St. Louis Cardinals and said, please take this man away from us. And they did. And within two years, Roger Cedeno was out of baseball. He ate himself out of baseball. What a horrible contract. What a horrible time in Mets history. And let it be a lesson. Don't bring back the ex-lover. It's going to be worse, and it's going to be fat. And that's why I, you know, it just goes back to so many other opportunities that the Mets have tried to bring back their former players. Like when they were making that trade for Carlos Gomez and it backfired. (laughs) I'm like, the writing is on the wall. He's going to suck. Why are, we, why are we attempting so much to get him? Because we've seen this the dangers of the world. Uh, listen, you and me, I, I agree. Once they're gone, they're gone. It very rarely works. I mean, I'm sure there are some examples if I really gave it more thought on where they do work, but most of the time, the reunion doesn't. Uh, this free agent contract signing, I, I honestly, you could put it in the Mount Rushmore. 
very easily based on just not playing baseball. And that, of course, is the recent signing, the relatively recent signing of Jed Lowry. Jed Lowry signed a <laughs> Jed Lowry signed a two-year, $20 million contract going into the 2019 season. Jed Lowry played nine games in 2019. And we weren't even sure what his injury was. He played nine games. He had seven at-bats. He never recorded a hit as a New York Met. And what is so embarrassing about this is when Jed Lowry was a free agent, there was another infielder who was a free agent that I thought was on the same level, especially considering what Lowry did in 2018. He was an all-star. He had 23 home runs. He drove in 99 runs. He was a versatile switch-hitting infielder. And there was another infielder in free agency. And I thought, hey, flip a coin, they're the same. And that guy was DJ LeMahieu. And I remember making the point, and I thought it was a sound point. I think Jed Lowry fits the Yankees better than DJ. I do. Just because of the switch hitting aspect, the position versatility. DJ hadn't shown that that quite yet in his major league career. And the Yankees signed DJ, obviously. The Mets signed Jed Lowry. And oh my God. Could you have even imagined a bigger difference than DJ winning batting titles and Jed Lowry never getting a hit? That's why Jed Lowry could win this whole freaking competition, Pete, because he never got a hit. Like every other person we mentioned had at least a moment where they did something. Even Roger Cedeno had a moment, right? Jed Lowry had eight plate appearances after he signed a two-year, $20 million contract and never got a hit as a Met. He walked, He's a though. career zero he, hitter. He walked. He got on base once. That, that, that's a positive. That is a positive. <laughs> and the best part is that after he, you know, 2020 didn't play again. That was a COVID year, et cetera. Who knows what the issues were there. Next year, 2021, he goes back to Oakland. He has 14 home runs. Yeah. 14 home yeah. runs. Yeah. I, I don't know what to make of this one. You know, I think in Cedeno's case, I gave you an answer. A guy kind of got fat. Now, Jed was not great with Oakland when he went back. But to your point, he was a Major League Baseball player. You know, he still went out and, and did something. He did not play for the New York Mets. It's not as if we're ripping him for being a 210 hitter. We're saying he didn't play. And I almost have to defend Brody Van Wagenen on this. Who could see that coming? I mean, honestly... The guy's coming off an all-star season. You want to tell me he's not going to match his all-star season? Fine. But he didn't play. He signed a two-year contract and never played baseball. This is one of those contracts, one of those free agent signings that I think we're going to talk about forever. We're always going to talk about the legend of Jed Lowry. We're going to scratch our head and say, the guy never played baseball. He came here, cashed his little check. It wasn't even that big of a check in baseball terms and never played baseball. Mind-boggling. So, so, by the way, BT thinks that your Rico Bronya podcast name is a slight on Rico Bronya that you're making fun of him. I say, no, you're not. It's You have a level of respect for Rico Bronya. You One of your favorite players growing up. You loved him. He wasn't this amazing player, but you thought he was going to be this amazing player. Because when you look at uh, Spike Eskin's podcast, The Rights to Ricky Sanchez... It's a joke. It's a it's a it's a play on who who Ricky Sanchez could have been, all sort of stuff. If there were, if that was the re- way you were going to go with the name of this podcast, it should have been Jed Lowry. <laughs> That's a fair point. 
<laughs> yeah, if we were mocking somebody, Jed Lowry would be a very good option, considering he has a career zero average <laughs> as a New York Met player. <laughs> uh, how about this free agent signing? This one, this is going to piss you off. I just, I know you well enough to know that you're about to go on a Wilpon rant. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. So I'm just going to give the guy's name. I'm going to say his contract, and then I'm going to let you take the lead. All right? Okay. Michael Kadire, two years, $21 million, right before the 2015 season. Go ahead. Hey, David Wright, listen. We want you to commit to us. We want to to give you, you know, we're, we're going to give you the world. Just take a little bit lesser uh, of finances, and then we'll find a way to make this. T- what do you want? And we'll take care of it. All right, you know what? As long as you could be committed to me, uh, committed to this team, we'll go go far. Uh, make sure Michael Kadir is on the team, and then we'll go from there. Cool, Michael Kadir, no problem. Two years, what twenty million dollars? Let's go, bring him in. And then that was it. That was their commitment. That was their overcommitment to David Wright to put together a championship team. Oh, by the way, the walls are pushed back beyond belief. You'll never reach them. You'll never reach them. And this team is going to go nowhere. Have fun. We we every promise we gave you is, is down the drain, and that's how I felt. Like I mean, when when David Wright, I was ecstatic that they committed to David Wright and not Jose Reyes because I thought that that was even though I loved Jose Jose Reyes' speed and everything, I thought that David Wright was the the glue. He was the 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 gritty, the made exciting plays. He was something about him that was the guy that I was all about, and I think they lied to him to his face so many times. And it, it like backstabbed him almost, uh, even though they front stabbed him too. And Michael Kadire was that was that piece that was like, if you want somebody, we'll get him. Michael Kadire is it? It's a your your friend. It's you know it'll make you happy. We'll keep him keep you around. We'll make this all great. And that was it. And it was just like, oh my god, this team sucks. It, it, you know, because they traded for Cespedes and they salvaged the season more than salvaged it. They won the pennant. They got to the World Series. It's easy to look back at this and say, yeah, it sucked, no harm, no foul. But this could have been a disaster because they couldn't wait to sign Michael Kadire going into the 2015 season. They signed him. I, I remember it was early, so I went back and looked at the date. They signed him on November 10th. Very rarely do free agents sign that early. I mean, with the Mets, Mets MO, though, not for nothing, if you go back to the history and, and look at this year, who was the first free agent that was signed? Edwin Diaz. Yes, and it was November what? 6th? That's different. Though. No, That's no. their own guy. The, the Mets typically make a major splash quick. I'm telling you right now, look over the past well, few years. They make one quick. But anyway, yeah. So Kadai was one of the quickest. But you can't make it with a 36-year-old guy who just played in Colorado for three years. Like, it was when they signed him, I didn't think he was going to be terrible. I know it's always tough because when you see a guy's numbers in Colorado, you try to figure, okay, well, what is he going to be in New York? You go back to his time with the Twins, and he was a productive player, so you figure, all right, he'll be a 275, 280, 20 home run, 15 home run, 75, 80 RBI guy, 800 OPS. That was my thought. That's not what he was in Colorado. He was far better. I mean, he was coming off the year in Colorado in which he had a 955 OPS at 332, won a batting title two years earlier. I thought he would be productive. And considering what ended up happening with how bad the Met lineup was and how bad Kadire was, he had 260 at a 700 OPS, that could have been a move we look back on and hate even more than we do now 
because they sort of erased it. They went out, they traded for Cespedes, and they went to the World Series, and Kadire was just a good clubhouse guy. That's basically what he turned into. Nice clubhouse guy, and you laid it out perfectly. A David Wright friend. It made David Wright happy. But two years, $21 million. 2015, he comes out, he hits 259. Plays 117 games, and just, you know, was a blah-free agent. The only good thing is he retired, and I don't think the Mets had to pay him the second the second year in his contract. I think he actually did retire. I don't think the Mets had to pay him think the about, entire deal. Think about this. The half of the guys are talking about is how did the Mets get out of paying them the rest of their contract? <laughs> That's sad. It's so freaking sad. Well, this whole episode is sad. I've told I, you. That. I know. We knew that going in. Uh, this is an early one. This is beginning of my Met fandom but maybe the worst free agent signing in the history of the franchise. And that is the firecrackering man himself, oh. Vince Coleman. <laughs> Vince Coleman is known for throwing a firecracker. Literally. That's what he's known for. Brett Saberhagen is known for firing bleach off at reporters. I mean, that early 90s New York Mets in a nutshell. But what made things really, really bad for Vince Coleman, and let this be a warning. Vince Coleman was signed as a replacement. Remember, after the 1990 season, a year in which the Mets won 91 games, by the way, their big free agent was Darryl Strawberry. And look, we look back on this all these years later, probably one of the biggest mistakes the franchise ever made and a real turning point in the franchise's history was letting Darryl Strawberry leave. But they did. He signed with the L.A. Dodgers. The rest is history. And the Mets at the time knew they had to do something. They had to go out and replace him. And there's a lot of examples of this throughout baseball history where you lose a premier player and then you run out and try to sign a free agent thinking that that's going to cure things, that that's, that'll make the fans happy. The Yankees had it happen to them when they lost Robinson Cano. They went out and signed Jacoby Ellsbury. We know how that worked out. The Red Sox lost Mo Vaughn, very popular guy in free agency. They replaced him with Jose Offerman. The Mets lost Darryl Strawberry, and they replaced him with Vince Coleman, which if you look at Vince Coleman through the lens of today, you would say to yourself, why are you signing him? Mets signed him to a four-year, $11 million deal, about $12 million deal, to be fair. And Vince Coleman, on the numbers that we look at today, was never that good. Like, had a very, very low OPS, did not draw walks, struck out a lot, didn't hit for that great of an average, had absolutely no power whatsoever, but there was one thing he did really, really well. He stole a crap ton of bases, an amount of bases that we can't even imagine today. In his rookie season, when he won the Rookie of the Year in 1985, Pretty good year for the St. Louis Cardinals, wouldn't you say? He stole 110 bases. We'll never see that number again. He led the league. He stole 107 bases in 86. He led the league. He stole 109 bases in 87. Another pretty good year for the Cardinals. It led the league. He stole 81 in 88. Led the league. Stole 65 in 89. Led the league. And finally, in his last year with the Cardinals, stole 77 bases. Led the league. But you have to figure, at 29, 30 years old, his legs are going to eventually go. He's not going to steal 90 bases. Those numbers are going to go down. And if he's not a great hitter to begin with, 
What the hell do you think is going to happen? So here's what's sort of funny about Vince Coleman. Vince Coleman's OPS, which I admit, that's one of the numbers I look at immediately. His OPS with the New York Mets was better than it was with the St. Louis Cardinals. And you think to yourself, what? Yeah, because he wasn't that good with the St. Louis Cardinals. He was overrated. He was buoyed by the fact that he stole a billion bases. So when he comes to the Mets and he hits 255 in his first season and he has a 674 OPS, those are basically the numbers he had in St. Louis. Here's the difference. He missed half the season and stole 37 bases, which isn't bad when you consider it's half the season. If you double it, that's another 75 stolen base kind of season. Comes back in 1992. Misses half the season. His stolen bases are now down to 24. And then in 1993, he's on the worst team money could buy. And he also misses half the season. So Vince Coleman's problem was that, A, he wasn't that good to begin with. B, he never played. And C, you're asking him to replace Daryl Strawberry. He was nothing like Daryl Strawberry. And oh, I left this out. Vince Coleman was a complete asshole, right? So when you factor all that together, that was a really, 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 really bad free agent signing in the history of the Mets. I, I, I the, the only thing I really remember about him is the firecracker. That's all I remember. It was him and who else? It was him and somebody else that was it. There was somebody else that was with him that was there for the yeah. firecrackers. I so can't remember I, if, who it was. If memory serves correct, it wasn't a teammate. I think it was Eric Davis. Yeah, was it? I think it was. I oh, think no, it was. No, now I'm no. going to look this up right now. I'm going to Google it as we speak. Vince Coleman, Eric Davis. Wait, and they threw it in somebody's car? I, I think that was the story. If Mets we... <laughs> Coleman flips firecracker, three fans injured, including a one-year-old girl. Yeah, so here's the story. The Jeep Grand Cherokee that he threw it out of was being driven by Eric Davis. <laughs> Vince Coleman and Bobby Bonilla were passengers in the car. Oh, another jerk. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. Injured in the blast, according to reports, was an unidentified one-year-old girl and an 11-year-old boy. Oh, my God. What? The, what? Yes. I remember. My father scared the crap out of me with the story. He's like, can you believe? I remember this This story I remember so, so well because my father was so pissed. He's like, could you believe what these morons are doing? And that's why Bobby Bonilla, when you go back to for, to you put you add him as a uh, part of the best free agent signings in Mets history, but the negative cloud around him was part of the reason why we don't like him. He was a dick. Yeah, yeah, and the t- the team was awful. I mean, I think that always adds to it when you're just on a really really bad baseball team and. That was a really bad baseball team, and he barely played, and he wasn't good, and like you said, he was a bad guy who had a lot of bad publicity, and that's really what led to it, but I think it's a lesson for teams. When you lose an icon, don't force it. Don't try to sign someone to replace them. I mean, you got to sign probably multiple guys if you're losing an icon. Uh, Speaking of icons, we got to get to Kazmatsui. I mean, how do we not get to one of the great? Now, we consider him a free agent, even though he came over from Japan, right? I mean, that's Oh, a, he's a free agent. Yeah, definitely. He's 100%. a free agent. So uh, there, there are a few and reasons. And he's terrible, too. So he's definitely part, part of this <laughs> yeah. list. There's a few reasons why Kaz Matsui really balloons up this list. He signs a three-year, $20 million contract from Japan. 
Uh, this is not that far removed from Ichiro Suzuki coming to America three years earlier. And it was when Hideki Matsui was coming over. And Hideki Matsui turns out to be, you know, not necessarily a Hall of Famer, but had a really good career in America and had a really good career on the other side of town. And here are the Mets, who did not have a great history of signing guys from Japan. No knock on you, Suyoshi Shinjo, but you're not Ichiro. He comes over, he's 28 years old, and he's the reason Jose Reyes is moving to second base. Granted, at the time, Reyes is a prospect, so we don't know how good Jose Reyes is going to be, but... For Reyes to move over to another position, the assumption is, boy, this Kaz Matsui guy must be really, really good. And our first impression of Kaz was fantastic because all he would do in his Met career was hit opening day first pitch home runs. He had like this incredible knack for hitting home runs right out of the gate, which I never fully understood, but he did it. He did it in Atlanta to open up that first season he had of 2004 I think he did it again in 2005 like he always did it in the brief time he was a member of the New York Mets but immediately you could tell he was not a shortstop you could tell you watched his range you just watched him the eye test and you said what like how how is this guy the shortstop what are they doing and I guess if I have to give the Mets any kind of credit was the fact that after that rookie season of 04, in which he wasn't very good, I I don't know what our expectations were, but they were certainly a lot better or a lot more than what we got out of him. He had 270, but seven home runs, didn't steal a lot of bases, 720 OPS, and again, crappy defense at shortstop. They immediately moved him to second base. It's like they knew. They said, all right, we... We have to admit we're wrong here. Let's move him to second base. And believe it or not, his rookie season was the best we ever saw from him because he missed a lot of 2005. And when he played, he wasn't very good. He played a little bit in 2006 before they finally dumped his ass. And then he bounced around the majors, actually played the major leagues for a while with the Rockies and the Astros. But I think what makes Matsui bad are two things that have nothing to do with just his mediocre numbers. A, the fact they moved Reyes to second, and B, the fact that Hideki Matsui was one town over, and we saw how the Mets seemed to do really bad at picking players to come over from Japan. And that led us to looking at Kaz Matsui as a punchline all these years later. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, uh, I remember when Reyes got moved over, and that, that that was a laugher right there. And I, it's funny because you look at how many home runs he hit in total, uh, and and that was the exciting thing too. Like you look at like a, a, a shortstop that we had previously, Ray Ardonias, who waited till September to hit home runs, right? So you're like, oh my god, this guy actually hits home runs early, and then they still have the same produ- productivity as far as power wise goes. So it's like, what we can't win the shortstop position. You just can't find a, a shortstop that's going to be productive with power. So I think that was frustrating. And again, you're you're right. Like the sexiness, the sexy appeal of like, ooh, so we we get somebody from overseas. It's going to work out. Totally backfired, and it was frustrating. It was. Let's get to the grand poobah of crappy free agents, and that, of course, was the four-year, sixty-six million dollar contract that was handed out to Jason Bay. Jason Bay. I heard a, a while back that Colin Cowherd, the famous TV and radio host of Fox Sports actually blames the Jason Bay signing on all of us at WFAN that 
<laughs> and what? by the way, yeah, so Colin Cowherd said a while back that sometimes bad teams in New York listen too much to sports talk radio. He's not crazy with this point, by the way. So I'm not here to actually make fun of him. I think he actually makes a lot of sense. And he gave a specific example that he was living in Bristol, Connecticut during this time period, the time period of 2009, 2010, and that sports talk radio essentially bullied the Mets into signing Jason Bay. He is not wrong. He really isn't. First of all, I do think WF fans had power over the years. We've always talked about the Mike and the Mad Dog, Mike Piazza trade, but I do think that ownership listens. I think that ownership listens to the fans, and the best way to listen to the fans is through WFAN. And look, I think there are other ways they listen to the fans, whether it's Twitter nowadays, or it's podcasts like this, or it's uh, social media in general. I do think there are owners in this town, Woody Johnson, John Marrett to a degree, who have listened to what the fans wanted. And I was on the fan during this time. Joe and I were doing middays. And what I recall about this free agent period was that the Mets were obviously coming off an abysmal 2009 and there was a demand. You've got to spend money. You've got to add a big free agent. And there were three big free agents at the time. John Lackey, Matt Holliday, and Jason Bay. And Joe and I debated it because Joe had a preference and I had a preference. And I'm not saying this to make Joe look bad. Joe had good reason for this, but he wanted Jason Bay. And a lot of people wanted Jason Bay. And their reasoning, again, real sound. I I, I didn't expect Jason Bay to come here and suck. But the reason why Beningo specifically wanted Jason Bay was what had just happened in 2009. Remember, a year earlier, the Pittsburgh Pirates finally traded Jason Bay away and they traded him to the Boston Red Sox. And he goes over to Boston and very productive to close out the 2008 season. And then in 2009, has maybe the best year of his career. It's 36 home runs, drives in 119 runs, has a 921 OPS, and proved to us, this was the consensus, that guy can handle New York, he just handled Boston. And who could argue with that, by the way? That was Beningo's big point to me. And my point back is, Matt Holliday's better. And his retort, fair, we'll never know the answer to this. I don't know if Matt Holliday can handle New York. I don't know what Matt Holliday is outside of Coors Field. He'd only played one year out of Colorado at the time he was with Oakland. I prefer Jason Bay. And my response is, I prefer Matt Holliday. And John Lackey was an option if you just wanted to go all in on starting pitching. So I thought it was a fair debate at the time. I thought it was an even debate. I was not hating the idea of signing Jason Bay. That would be me faking my history. Like, I was not against it. I had a preference for another guy because I thought the guy was better. Simple as that. But guess what? Matt Holiday wasn't only better. He was, uh uh-oh, more expensive. No. He's expensive. And you know what that means. That means the Will Pond say, no, 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 no. Let's Matumbo finger that one. Let's go get Jason Bay. And the Jason Bay thing took forever. Francesa came on the air. The Mets are going to sign Jason Bay. It took like a month and a half. And then they finally did sign Jason Bay. And it was met with excitement. But Met fans were demanding. Like, Coward's not wrong about that. We as a radio station, we're demanding a big move. Again, Maybe not all of us were saying Jason Bay, but we were all good with Jason Bay. 
because there was no reason not to be good with Jason Bay. Look at his career. Look at what he did in Pittsburgh. Look what he did in Boston. He was a consistently productive player. He went out. He essentially played every day for the most part. Pretty much. I mean, his career to that point was 150 games a year. And why would we be against it? So while I thought Holiday was better, I certainly wasn't against Jason Bay. But this goes back to something I said earlier in the podcast. You don't want to bring back the X. Jason Bay never played for the New York Mets. But remember, Jason Bay was in the New York Mets farm system. Jason Bay was acquired in a very nondescript trade deadline deal in 2002. He was. And then the Mets got rid of him. Actually, they traded him away in a nondescript trade deadline deal of 2002. They had acquired him in March of 2002. So he was only on the Mets in their farm system for a very short period of time. And he was traded numerous times. He was traded by the Expos to the Mets. He was traded by the Mets to the Padres. He was traded by the Padres to the Pirates before he finally put together what was a really solid major league career. And then he became a Met. And boy, did he suck. And we could talk about the concussion and falling near the fence in left field at Dodger Stadium. Here's the bottom line. Jason Bay lost it as a player. Now, why did he lose it? I have no idea. Was it because he was 31? Was it because he finally got paid? Was it just that his skills diminished? Was it really that injury, even though he was struggling before the injury? I have no idea. But in three seasons with the New York Mets, he played 288 games. He hit 234. He had a 687 OPS. He had 26 home runs in his entire Met career. He hit it 36 the year before. And he sort of became the face of that 2010 to 2012 malaise that the Mets were in. Terrible, terrible contract. Terrible free agent signing. You Did you want Jason Bay at the time? Or were you in favor of something else? So, it's a double-edged sword. I did, but he wasn't my first choice. I wanted Matt Holiday. That was the guy I wanted. And I just looked back to double-check to see when they signed Jason Bay signed with the Mets before the Cardinals signed uh, Matt Holiday. So I think at the time I was excited because I didn't care which one they got. I think I thought I was going to be happy, but I did think I I, be- I did want Matt Holiday over Jason Bay. But I liked Jason, Jason Bay since he was a Pirate. So I listen fantasy baseball. I was heavy into fantasy baseball at that point in time. So he was always somebody that I drafted on my fantasy baseball team, and then went to the Red Sox. I was like, "Oh, this guy's even better again." Like he had a dip. Don't get me wrong. Before he went to the Red Sox, he did dip. So I was a bit concerned, but I wasn't that concerned. Yeah, I mean, it it's tough to be concerned. If we're being fair, I mean, it's easy to sit here now and talk about how crappy he was, but going into it, I was excited. Going into it, the Mets added a really productive player, and it's it's a reminder that sometimes you just don't know. And sometimes there's no evidence coming into something that things are going to be this bad. There was no evidence whatsoever that Jason Bay was going to come to the New York Mets and be terrible. Nothing. Nothing. You could just be the most negative fan and assume bad crap's going to happen, but there was no evidence to support that. So separating the guys we mentioned earlier 
a way back when at the beginning of this pod. Oliver Perez, Gilkey, Castillo, Cespedes, George Foster, guys that they acquired and then re-signed. Put them aside. Of the free agents they added from another team, my Mount Rushmore would consist of Jason Bay, of Vince Coleman. Have to put Vince Coleman there. Jason Bay. And the Vince Coleman thing, again, like I pointed out, it's not like he became a bad baseball player. He was never a good baseball player. So it's different than some of these other guys, but I still put him up there for the reasons we laid out. You're trying to replace Daryl Strawberry. This is your big move, pathetic. The firecracker stuff. Just he became the face of a bad time in Met history. So I'm putting him there, even if he doesn't fit the bill as a guy that fell off the, the rooftop. So I'm going Jason Bay. Vince Coleman, Jed Lowry, because he never played, and Roger Cedeno. That, to me, is my Mount Rushmore of putrid, pathetic, disgusting Met free agent signings from guys coming from other teams. How would you line it up? Um, I think it's interesting, but I'm going to go a bit different than you. I think Jason Bay's a no-brainer. He has to be on that list. I think everyone has him on his list no matter what. Uh, I, and I do believe that Jed Lowry is up there as well, and I think we should do a side pro- project Jed Lowry po- podcast from now on, by the way. and or, or either that or have Jed come on. Hey, can you explain to us why you decided not to play for the Mets? Just, just let, <laughs> I just want to know. And that's it. Just hang up and listen. Um, I'm going to throw Kazmatsui on there because, again, the nature of who he was, what we did, how we rolled the red carpet out for the guy who – just sucked. It was just terrible. Again, he wasn't a bad guy, but the over uh, production uh, to bring somebody in to go outside of the major leagues to go to a different country to bring somebody in who just was just that bad, and that's typical Mets. And then finally, um, oh, this is tough. I, I think I'm going to go Michael Kadire because there was a promise with that, which ended up leading to good things with Cespedes and that 2015 for it to work out as well as it did, but to start out with a Michael Kadari signing and to not really have much hope. That's why I wasn't able to enjoy the 2015 ride as much as I did because it just felt blah. It never felt like this was a real contender. Yeah. No, I get it. I totally get it. It's a fair Mount Rushmore. It's a depressing Mount Rushmore. <laughs> but that's it. We, we had to go to the bad. You can't have a free agent list of good and leave out the bad. If you missed our podcast on the greatest free agent Mets signings, if you need a cleansing after listening to some bad, bad baseball over the last hour, you can go back in the archives and check that out. Any comments or opinions that differ from us, obviously we expect that. You could tweet at us or you could email the pod at the Rico B at gmail.com at the Rico B not at just email the Rico B at gmail.com. Hopefully you take a shower after this podcast and you cleanse yourself because hopefully there are no more awful free agent signings in our near future. Thank you for listening to Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.